Welcome back to the TV Line podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Michael Osiello. Today's guest is Whitney Cummings, the stand-up comic, actress, producer, who is taking a little bit of a segue in her career and showrunning and exec producing the Roseanne revival. Whitney, welcome. Thank you. You were six years old when Roseanne debuted. Is that true? That's wild. I read it somewhere on the internet. <laughs> I can't. I mean, math is not my strong suit, but that's that's surreal. So, but you are a huge Roseanne fan. So how how did that come to be? I'll try to make this succinct, so it's, it's not too boring. But I had worked with Tom Warner, who was one of the original producers on Roseanne, Carsey Warner, and we worked on an HBO pilot and together, and and just we're trying to find projects to work on. And I know he had worked on Roseanne and as sort of my religion growing up, I was always bugging him between takes, like, give me some stories and tell me what, how did this scene happen and who came up with this story? And I was just so obsessed with the lore of, of Roseanne uh, behind the scenes and uh, what ended up airing. And uh, as a writer, you know, every writer's room, you know, there's some kind of Roseanne stories that end up happening at some point when you guys, uh, at lunch, everyone's sharing Roseanne. Usually, stories. were you one of the people who was called by a number? <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I she had, called her writers by numbers back in the that's day. That's right. Yeah. I did. I did hear that. And uh, you know, look, real st- strong boundaries. Uh, and I had worked with Rob Eulin, who was on the show. I just had worked with a bunch of writers, and I was always like, just wanted to know what it was like. And I was always so fascinated by her, and and moved by her. And the show had such a big impact on me. And and then so he knew that I was a big fan. And then when Sarah Gilbert initiated for the show to come back, he called me. And he was like, would you want to do this? And I was busy. I had other things going on. But I just ideas started coming to my head. And I was like, I guess I have to do this. I was looking for a way to be of service after the election. And uh, I didn't know how. And I didn't know how to apply my myself. And I just thought, yeah, maybe being on a show where the lead character voted for Trump is how I can um, get into the living rooms of the people that, that did vote for him. But you were six years old. Were you watching Roseanne at six? I did a lot of inappropriate things at six, uh, from what I gather. But uh, no, I remember maybe like eight to ten and into my teenage years I was watching Roseanne. But I remember being so young that I didn't understand that it was TV. I thought it was, and also because the show was so grounded and real and their living room looked like my living room and the way they talked, they talked like my family. They sort of were, um, you know, caustic with each other and they talked about paying bills and not having enough money. And I, I thought it was, not that I knew what this was, I thought it was like a documentary. I didn't realize it was a scripted show <laughs> until New Becky came in. There was a new, when Sarah Chalk came in, who I didn't know who she was, obviously, and I was just like, what's happened? And I was like, You're oh. like, that doesn't happen in real life. People don't get recast. That's right. You don't just get replaced. <laughs> like, what, like, and I was so, that blew my mind. And that was the first time I understood what tell, that it was actors saying lines, hmm. um, was the first time I understood that. And I was like, who's this? I, I, but Becky's a real person. You know, I was so confused. So I also am a huge fan of Roseanne. Um, I loved the first eight seasons. I did not like the last nine seasons. A lot of season. diehard fans don't love the final season. Well, how did you feel ninth. about the ninth season? You know, I feel like I, at the time, again, I, 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 I remember being like confused. I remember just being like, "Oh, they're rich! Like this is odd." Like I just, I remember being more confused than anything. But I, I don't think I was old enough to really be like disappointed or you know anything like that. Um, but looking back, watching it now and being a writer, I go like, oh, gosh. But I feel like now this gets to sort of maybe be, you know, a final season or like a sort of new way to course correct that. 
when the creative team was coming together and discussing this possible revival, was there immediately a sense of, if we're going to do this, it needs to be classic Roseanne. It's, it is not going to be, you know, guest star cameo in season nine of the week, ab fab people coming in and out. You know what I mean? Like, You're right. Wow. That's amazing because like, it's so interesting you just said that because every time we were sort of thinking about like stunt casting or like, it's like the biggest stars are on the show <laughs> already. You know, it was this kind of wild thing. And I know that it got really intense um, around putting the set together, uh, which was super meticulous and emotional for everybody and, um, and casting Darlene's kids um, mm -hmm. and DJ's kid because it was so important to us that this didn't feel like the sellout version of Roseanne 20 years later and we wanted the casting to feel authentic and like you said classic Roseanne these kids should look like Connors mm -hmm. and it's hard to find actors that look like Connors um, and uh, you know so so there were times you know it's interesting because TV has this especially multicam you're on such a crazy schedule things can get bad real fast if you're not careful and so there were times you know where there's a temptation to put too many jokes in. Roseanne, you know, that show was always so inherently funny. It wasn't like a bunch of jokes, you mm -hmm. know? Sitcom has evolved to just being like, everyone's a roast comic. You know, the dad's got, the kids got brilliant jokes. Like everyone's just firing off like incredibly crafted jokes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Roseanne was never like that. You know, I remember the show having drama. I remember crying, you know, Jackie getting abused by her boyfriend, DJ not kissing the black girl at the school play. It was like things were inherently tense. And we really want to make sure when we were breaking the stories, we just, funny came last. Roseanne and, and John Goodman and Laurie Metcalf, the, Sarah Goldberg, the funny's going to be there. We don't have to worry about that for the difference between writing Roseanne and other shows was let, let, let's just approach this like a drama. And that to me feels like the classic Roseanne, just people being real in tense situations with really strong points of view and character driven jokes instead of just jokey jokes that anyone could say. So you have experience running shows coming into this. I mean, you were the creator of Whitney mm -hmm. and a pro exec producer. You were the exec producer, co-creator of Two Broke Girls. Mm -hmm. um, how helpful were those experiences in, in doing Roseanne? Oh, that's a, a great question. I mean, I'm glad that I knew how to make a multicam. I knew how it worked, yeah. you know, um, but in it's interesting I sort of feel like I had to throw everything I'd ever learned out <laughs> I sort of felt like I was starting from scratch because it's just such a different um, you know uh, tone you know I know that two broke girls and Michael Patrick King and I made it I think we you know sort of I, I personally always wanted to make a young Roseanne you know that that sort of is what that show was mm -hmm. it's sort of two girls that are broke and Kat Dennings is essentially is Roseanne, Roseanne Barr yeah. totally totally yeah. and that was a huge inspiration you know inspiration to me like what was Roseanne talking like when she was 25 mm -hmm. you know and those girls are a little more entrepreneurial and hip and all that kind of stuff you know it took place in New York opposed to Lanford and middle America so there's a little bit different value system wise but um but that was always something, you know, we wanted to make a show about um, girls paying bills and wanting to start a business and failing and being broke and paying their time. Like those were the A stories, you know? I think we were just sick of seeing every girl on TV being like, is he gonna text me back? We are like, this is not the, uh, we love men, but it's not the center of every woman's universe anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, all the young women I know are just, you know, trying to get book deals and start blogs and businesses. And they wanna be, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow and Jessica Alba, and they wanna be moguls. They don't really care if he texted back, you know? So I guess we just wanted to, um, reflect the part of television that a lot of Hollywood writers we sometimes forget um, about um, the drama of just paying bills and trying to keep the lights on 
and uh, you know, the more dramatic a situation is, the higher the stakes, and the more you care about the characters, the funnier the jokes are. Funnier the jokes are. Mm -hmm. So if you just have a bunch of people you don't care about saying jokes, it's just like change the channel. You know, so it was super helpful. You know, in um, you know, there were so many characters to service in this show, so many beloved characters, and you want all of them to have screen time. So, you know, it was a little bit tricky because you know. Um, the NBC show I did and, and Two Broke Girls was kind of like two people, two people. This was, there's eight, sorry, eight amazing characters. So it was like a challenge. It, you write it more like a play than a sitcom per se and trying to sort of service all of the characters in an honest way that doesn't feel like you're servicing a character mm -hmm. um, was was a new challenge that I hadn't really experienced yet. So Roseanne is involved was involved creatively, but yeah. how much? Because I, I get a sense that she she wasn't in the writer's room every day like she she, she wasn't during production yeah. but i was surprised in the beginning she came in almost four days a week out of five she would come to the writer's room not the whole you know sort of day i think she yeah. really you know didn't want to feel like she was smothering us i feel like she didn't feel like she wanted to you know she didn't want us to um you know be so scared about her i think she knows the effect she has on people and yeah. she knows when she's in the room everyone's just sort of like Mom, do you love me now? You know, everyone kind of regresses <laughs> into a five-year-old because you just want her approval and, and everyone gets a little bit scared. Um, but she came in and she was, you know, she was telling stories and, you know, a lot of it, um, you know, you'll see in the show, she had a knee injury in real life and she told this amazing story and we were like, okay, let's figure out the Roseanne Connor version of that. Um, you know, everything she's been going through with her grandkids and her kids and, you know, she would just come in and tell amazing stories and it was super inspiring and super, super helpful. Yeah. You know. So let's talk about the Trump thing. Um, I So I've seen three of the nine episodes. I was actually at one of them, too, so that's four. That's right. Which um, one were you? I was at um, the Estelle Parsons. That's right. Which was so funny. The one where, um, uh, I think, the nursing home, the one where. She comes, she's staying with, she, she goes to stay with Jackie. Right. So she gets booted out of Roseanne's house and she goes, she goes, you, to stay she's with in the whole episode. Yes. Okay. Cause she's also in the Johnny Galecki episode. Right. I did not see that. Right. One. And that is a small, that's more of a B story. But then she came in and her and Jackie's dynamic, I mean, Lori Metcalf and Michelle Parsons, it was just so unbelievable. And we ended up having to cut some of it out. We were like, let's just give them their own episode. Yeah. Cause I had actually seen you before that episode taped. We had talked about yeah, my, yeah, my, yeah, my, yeah, my yeah. Roseanne obsession. We never, I never saw you after to tell you how much I absolutely loved it and how, how relieved. I was because this was the classic Roseanne that I wanted oh, wow. so badly. Um, there was a there's a there's a scene where Jackie is yelling at um, her mom uh, because her mom is using the blender constantly. Loudly, like, like yeah. to me that yeah. that joke that interaction right there is classic Roseanne, and there was so much of it, so I was so relieved. Um, but also Estelle Parsons, she's like ninety, she's but 90. she acts like she's twenty. You know so the way she was moving around that set, we had this week where it was she shot the final week that was the ninth episode mm. and it was an extra one so I'm so glad you got to come because that, we weren't we shot it after we shot the finale in fact everyone got sick everyone had pneumonia yeah. Lori Rosie John Sarah everyone was sick except Estelle <laughs> she was healthier than all of us she was like newer lines she was off book we're like what is she taking because she's in such amazing I literally health. was googling her IMDb page because I needed to know how old she was because because I first of all I was just so excited she was in it yeah. I thought she was going to be brought out in a wheelchair or yeah, something. yeah. <laughs> Weekend at Bernie's style. Right, exactly. Dragging and around. she's like moving around like as if no time had passed. And it's so, I mean, it's so interesting because it's like, I think we're all on this sort of arms race for what's edgy now, you know? And I, I you know, I think I've definitely done things that I think people consider edgy or blue or whatever. 
actually the edgiest thing you can do is put a 90 year old on television in an A story where you're not making fun or being like, you know, she has sex a lot or like whatever, you know, it was just kind of this really amazing human story. And we were just like putting a 90 year old on television, having real problems and really listen, not making her just the butt of every joke Mm. is actually super edgy because nobody really does that. There's this like obsession with youth right now and what their problems are. And in old people, we kind of tend to send out to pasture and forget about and uh, in our society. And I was going through um, my mom, putting her in a nursing home and what that looks like. And it's just this really nasty reality that I feel like shows mm-hmm. that um, that Roseanne is uniquely qualified to address and something that we'd want to go straight to. What do you do with an older parent that you don't get along with who's broke? Mm-hmm that has sucked at parenting you. It is a really relatable, frustrating, and we were thinking, we did all these focus groups because we wanted to make sure that we got this right and it wasn't a bunch of Hollywood elitist writers writing for a blue collar family, you know, Um, because you can smell that bullshit a mile away. And we did focus groups and, you know, we interviewed all these women right outside of Cleveland and asked them their biggest problems and they're this. And of course, you know, we asked like, so do you feed your kids organic? And they were like, no, (laughs) like shut up. Like we have 99 problems and fruit is not one of them. And so many of them were expressing how hard it is to have an aging parent. And a lot of families, they just come back and live with you. The idea of sending a parent to a nursing home is a fortune. Um, you know, so we really want to just address that complicated reality of what do you do with a parent that you kind of can't stand, who doesn't have the tools to love you, but you also have to take care of them all of a sudden and that role reversal of when your parent becomes your child. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so the, the Trump thing. Oh, right. Um, I, so I, and I wrote about this a little bit on TV Line uh, about how much I love the revival. I had a oh, tough time wrapping my head around the fact that uh, Roseanne Connor would vote really? for someone like Trump. Sure. Um, and mm-hmm. that's because... Uh, to me and to so many of my friends and, and even people who initially thought about voting for Trump, he's done so many things that have become a r- red line. Sure. He crossed a red line sure. for so many people. Sure. And I, what I don't understand is why he didn't cross any of those red lines with Roseanne Connor, some of them being his uh, um, banning trans troops from the military. Yeah. Uh, calling questions. Yes. Things that, because look, we all know, I feel like so much more about Trump's behavior than most of America who have three jobs and who don't have time to be on, you Mm -hmm. know, slate every day or whatever. Are you saying before the election or after? I'm saying, well, before the election, we have the whole bragging about sexual assaulting women. Sure, sure. So that that is a red line right there. But then, yes, especially after the election, so much has happened where I, knowing the the Roseanne Connor I know, would not have stood yeah. for that shit. Progressive, especially, feminist. Right, especially she's got a gender-fluid grandson who yep. she goes into school yep. and and yells at the bullies. Yeah. The reason those bullies are feeling emboldened is because of Trump. Trump, interesting, interesting. So to me, that was hard for me. Yeah. Like, I loved the episode w- w- revolving around Mark and her going into school and doing it. I loved it. It lost a little bit of the weight because no one confronted her about the hypocrisy. That's interesting. You know, it's funny because, you know, I, of course, grappled with this as well, and I did not vote the way Roseanne Connor or Roseanne Barr voted. Um, that's probably obvious. But I think that that's what, you know, 
also really attracted to me um, attracted me to working on this because I wanted to sort of be able to um, come to terms with the people that did vote for him and understand why and you know I think we're all sort of you know want to just dismiss and malign them as deplorables and idiots and morons and whatever and racists and da 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 and I'm just sort of like maybe these people are angry and feel unseen and unheard and you know and Hollywood's not helping because we basically make shows about you know elitist people who don't have financial problems and live in this kind of utopia um, of sort of um, unrealistic progressiveness, right? We're in like our own little echo chamber where we only follow people on Twitter we agree with and we only read things we agree with and anyone that doesn't agree with us, they're idiots. And so we had this conversation in the room quite uh, uh, extensively and Roseanne, we believe that Roseanne Connor, before the election, all that matters was jobs. And she said this at the TCA panel, so I'm just gonna you know plagiarize what she said about, you know, she believes at this point Roseanne Connor thinks that the most progressive thing you can do is employ people, black people, you know, uh, uh, immigrants, um, you know, gender fluid is for people to have jobs and money. That is the most, um, uh, that is what's going to fix racism. That's what she believes. Mm -hmm. And inequality is just giving people jobs and money. And so, you know, we have in the pilot, which I'm sure you saw the mm -hmm. first episode back, he said jobs, he said jobs, that's yep. all I care about. We also spent a lot of time uh, talking about what is she watching? What news is she consuming? Does she even know? Because now we're in this this world where a lot of people don't even know the truth. They're not even getting the truth. So uh, Roseanne Connor probably watches Fox News. And a lot of the things we find so incorrigible, she might not even have heard about. She's mm -hmm. not on Twitter every day. You know, she's not following Patton Oswalt on, <laughs> on Twitter. She doesn't know half of the stuff that we even know. And she heard the word jobs, and that's all that really mattered. And that's what happened with a lot of people. I don't know if a lot of people that voted for him were as progressive as Rosie was 20 years ago, mm -hmm. um, but we just felt like that was the realist take and that also she could have made a mistake, you know, and that she kind of might know that on some level, but I think for her with where she is at 65 years old, and you know, this was, you know, interesting because, you know, my Me Too was happening and Time's Up and, mm -hmm. and, and, the, and when you're poor, do you have the luxury of being progressive? Is being progressive, is being a feminist a luxury? And we really wanted to ask that question because um, when you're broke, being a feminist and, and hearing pussy grab, you don't get to have the same kind of values when you're poor. You just don't get to, and we kind of wanted to explore that, um, how you don't always get to be ethical if you're broke. You have to do what the best thing is for you. And you know her husband, Dan, um, you know, is, is in a union, but he is working freelance. She's driving an Uber. They don't have a 401k. You know, they don't have a backup plan the way a lot of us do. You know, so basically it was all about jobs. And she heard jobs and she thought, you know, like I have to feed my family. I don't get to be a feminist right now. Mm -hmm. I don't get to be progressive right now. I just have to feed my family. He said pussy grab. I don't get to be self-righteous about that. He said jobs, you know, so we wanted to explore that. Um, a lot of people had to maybe cash in their own dignity uh, when this all happened. But, you know, I do think because Trump although I was obviously didn't agree with him before the election, um, he did sell a lot of people a false bill of goods and did promise them a lot of things he never delivered on. And we have in the first line um, that Jackie says uh, when they see each other for the first time after not speaking for a year, um, how was that, you know, how's that health care that you suckers were promised? You know, we addressed the idea that mm -hmm. you guys were promised a bunch of shit that you never got. So I can see why she voted for him based on what he promised, but I can see how she has regrets later, but that would have been an interesting thing to put in the the Mark episode, the mm -hmm. you know yeah. him wearing a 
a skirt, but um. You was know. there ever any question of maybe putting in some of those regrets that she had? Because she doesn't express any regret whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that was even the tougher thing for me to get around, that yeah. she was digging her heels in after yeah. everything he has still done. Yeah. I felt like she's too smart yeah. to not express some kind of, yeah. have some self-awareness that perhaps she made a mistake. And I don't, and I don't disagree. And I think that Roseanne is kind of, you know, look, she's, she, you know, and I think there's something to, you know, when everyone was super conservative, she was progressive. And now that everyone's progressive, she's gotten a little more conservative, mm -hmm. you know, and I think it's interesting how, and I think she's has a subversive approach to this in a way, and it can be, you know, frustrating to watch, but I think she's also showing how sometimes as you get older, you lose the freedom to be super progressive. You know, it becomes about the bottom line of your family and your kids. I've seen it happen with a lot of my, you know, relatives that were, you know, like my aunt that I smoked weed with for the first time when I was 15, you know, voted for Trump. And I'm just like, what? You're the cool aunt. What happened? Shit gets real when your body starts falling apart and you don't have health insurance, mm -hmm. you know? So she has this knee injury and it's sort of about what happens when you, you can't afford to be super progressive anymore because you're so poor. Mm -hmm. And it's tragic and it's sort of on some level, um, you know, a redwood falling. Um, but I think it, Roseanne was always if real, if nothing else. And I think she really wanted to tap into that. I mean, she's got, you haven't seen the Muslim neighbor episode. No. Yeah. So she has a Muslim neighbor and, you know, watches Fox News. And if you watch Fox News and you have a Muslim neighbor, what do you think? Terrorist. You know, yeah. So we explored that, and so mm. there's a lot of places I think in this show where people go, "This isn't Roseanne. This isn't the Roseanne that I knew." But this is Roseanne 20 years later, with no health insurance, with a knee injury she can't pay for, and no 401k, and her husband is competing with doc undocumented workers for jobs because he's in construction. And now Elgin, the fictional town um, that she lives in, um, uh, uh, well, it's based on Elgin. Um, it's called Lanford. That's the fictional one. Um, is now primarily Mexican. And, you know, he's competing with undocumented workers for jobs and how things have gotten so rough that poor people have to give up their their value system, mm -hmm. you know, so it's 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 pretty interesting and, and complicated. And I think that that's what makes the show great. Like, I remember one of my favorite episodes was when DJ wouldn't kiss the black girl at the school play. Right. And then later. Um, uh, the kid's dad came to the restaurant she was working at. Remember, she locked the door because mm -hmm. she was scared. That was just such a fucking sorry. Sorry. That's fine. Cut that out. More, more, please. Uh, okay. <laughs> it was such a real flawed mistake. Um, but it was, you know, I think Roseanne likes to lean in to the fear that poor people or blue collar families have. And uh, that, you know, she did that 20 years ago. And I don't think we were like, oh, she's not progressive. It was oddly super progressive to just tell the truth, mm -hmm. you know, about her flaws and her fears and how we make mistakes sometimes and we do stupid things sometimes. And um, sometimes we put our safety and our family um, above our integrity, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, and I remember that moment and going like, OK, I get it. Ros the Roseanne character is flawed. She has made mistakes. She has done selfish things. She has out of fear you know, throwing people under the bus or, or whatever. And I think that that's what, why we bought her in a lot of ways and, and why she felt so real to us, mm -hmm. you know? And I don't think, it's interesting, I don't think she was ever like didactic about trying to be progressive. I don't think she was like, I'm a woman's issue. She just was like, was, you know? So I think we just want to make sure it didn't feel like we were in some PC, trying to make a statement, didactic, issue-driven thing. We kind of just wanted to hold up a mirror to what we think actually would have happened. You know, like Becky, you saw the first episode back. Becky has, um, you know, she's trying to be a surrogate for a rich family because, you know, I was really interested in the idea of exploring how poor people literally sell their bodies to rich people. And uh, that's 
you know, super fascinating to me that as a, you know, I have all these friends that are getting surrogates. And I'm like, who are these surrogates? And they're just basically poor women that are trying to win the lottery and trying to make 50 grand fast and, you know, risking their health uh, in the process. And so Becky's trying to do that because it seems like a quick way to make money in an area where she's now working at the Mexican restaurant. She can't make any money. She's in her 40s. She has no backup plan. She has no husband, nothing. And, um, and we spent a lot of time on what would Roseanne's take be on her daughter being a surrogate. And because she was always my body, my choice. She was always so pro-woman. But it's her daughter, and it's her daughter's egg. And she wants to see that grandkid. And things change, you know, when it's in your backyard. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to sort of show the occasional sort of hypocrisies and complications of emotional attachment when, you know, like I'm, women can do whatever they want with their bodies. Of course, that's my take. But if my sister wants to give her kid up for adoption, I'm like, no, all of a sudden this is not your choice anymore. That's my niece and I'm keeping it. Mm -hmm. You know how we sort of as humans, we have really grand plans for how progressive we're going to be until it's in our own house. And then we sort of, you know, become, you know, hypocrites and make mistakes and, and do and say sometimes ugly things. What can you say about Johnny Galecki's episode? God, that was so, I cried. First of all, was there a chance that that wasn't going to happen? Because it was my understanding that that was very touch and go. It was very touch and go. Um, I don't know what else I'm allowed to say about that. I'm just going to get sniped uh, off camera. Um, But it it was tricky. You know, he's on Big Bang Theory. He's on a very big show. Um, You know, we're not airing the same night as that show. We're on Tuesdays. So it feels like, you know, and Johnny was very passionate about coming back. I mean, this was his family growing up. It was his first big thing. You know, I think it would have been insane to to do this without him. So we basically made whatever concessions we needed to to make sure that it was, you know, because then when you're on a regular, you, I think, can do like a couple other guest spots on other shows as long as they don't compete. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it was no, no bad blood or anything. But it was really hard for me because... Um, David was like my boyfriend growing up and he's made a lot of mistakes his brother died Mark Mm -hmm. you know Becky's you know in real life and in the show and we sort of decided that that just made him go a little bit crazy and he couldn't handle the pressures of having two kids and raising them in Chicago without money and and um, we really wanted to explore the dynamic the specificity of their relationship because she was always there was like a gender reversal in a way in their relationship he was kind of always the more sensitive one and she was kind of the more domineering one and I think we were all super interested in what would happen when a man snapped and couldn't take that anymore and um, you know her sort of just sort of being the breadwinner and being the boss and you know cutting him down for 30 years basically what would have happened and would he have you know um, wanted to find someone else who looked up to him and um, be the man for once in a relationship and so yeah he's been going around doing charity work and came back and it was really really sticky and this is another thing that I think you will be interested in and maybe feel slightly betrayed by because I think I did for a minute is that Rosie um, is pro-David and I was like, she can't be. He left. He's not a good father. He's absent. She's got, you know, but her take was very, and we sat down with her for a while, was like, that's that's her kid's dad. You know, like, she, that's her grandchildren's father. And her take was, he's like a son to me, because she really did take in David back in the day when she found out his parents were abusive and he lived in their basement. You know, so she makes kind of a complicated, flawed choice because of love and attachment. You know, I sort of was pitching, oh, she'd say, get David out of here. I don't want to see him. Mm-hmm. That is, of course, Dan's take is I'll kill him if he comes into this house, mm-hmm. which is just so wonderful to see um, toxic masculinity or not. It's a delight to see a protective father, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, she has been communicating with him and, 
without telling Darlene, and she makes a lot of you know tricky. I don't want to say unethical, um, but sticky choices, as we all do, as all our parents do, as all our aunts do, as all our spouses do, and you know we really wanted to show her sort of humanity and not and not try to make her this perfect person who would always do have the side of her street be super clean because mm-hmm. that's not interesting. So uh, we're wrapping up here. Will and Grace just got renewed for another season. Oh, wow. Um, so now it's going to be around for three revival That's seasons. That's wild. Roseanne, is this the end? I don't think so. You know, we just had to figure out, Lori Metcalf can't stop getting nominated for awards. If we can just, <laughs> if we can find a way to get her for a couple months straight. Um, and John, it's a lot of schedules to align, yeah. but... From what I gather, every everyone is ready to do it again. Everybody wants to do it again, and you know, I was, uh, you know, the show airs tomorrow. I don't. This is it's going to seem dated. Tonight it'll be tonight, so you can tonight. say tonight. Yeah, okay. It's going to air tonight. If it's yeah, it's airing tonight. <laughs> and um, please cut that out if I screwed it up. But, <laughs> it's um, all good. It's uh, yeah. Just if someone listens to it in a week or something, um, it's interesting to see. I, I'm. What do you do? You think people are gonna? watch it i do i think uh, i think it's going to do very well initially um i was surprised how america voted on the president so i'm i'm sure i'll be surprised with my concern is that so my conflict is i want it to do really well because i I really think it's well done and i love the franchise my concern is though it's going to be it's going to be looked at perhaps like as a a win for trump like people watched it because of they knew she supported for Trump and this is yeah. them supporting her supporting Trump, which I don't believe will be the case. Yeah. Um, but I could see how that spin yeah. could happen if it does do really well. It's interesting, you know, it's like, again, I, I despise our president. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. You are. Um, okay. Uh, and it makes me sick every day. And, you know, I think that this show is is not about Trump. It's about the circumstances that made Trump a good idea to people. Mm-hmm. And I think it will behoove all of us to understand those circumstances better because we are failing ourselves and the country and it's not patriotic to just dismiss these people as idiots the ones that voted for them i mean trust me i'm super embarrassed white women are a very big part of why he won i'm horrified and uh i i think we all need to understand why and we need to give them a little more visibility because if we don't they're gonna keep they're gonna make themselves seen and heard by doing shit like this again you know and it's and when people are desperate and um you know don't have options and are scared this is the kind of shit dictators rise, you know? And that's sort of what I feel is happening. So I think giving these people visibility is really important. I'm glad you brought up Will and Grace. I did this like phone call when Michelle Obama did a phone call with showrunners. I don't know who was on the call, um, but it was a bunch of us and you had to dial in and she, this was I guess their last year in office and she said that Will and Grace paved the way, like the metrics were in for marriage equality because it put gay people in living rooms of people who had never met anyone gay before and they had normal problems and and difficulties and they cry and they get heartbroken and they're funny and they're humans and you know she said that she feels like with what we put on television and broadcast into people's living rooms has a huge impact on the way that they think and what they can tolerate you know and um, she was like please make more shows like that Um, and that don't show you know stereotypes and, and negative reinforcements of of um, racism and all that, obviously, and uh, and I think that's true. I think you can move the needle with television. I mean, we're not curing cancer. I know we're you know selling soap and all that every now and then, but 
um, you know, I think that I think that this can have an impact on culture and, and seeing, you know, people handle these situations with grace and seeing a family that disagrees but still loves each other, I think is mm -hmm. a really, you know, seeing people pay bills on television. You know, I can see how that could be very healing to people who have a life like that. I mean, you'll you know, are there other what are the other shows on TV that are reflecting Trump voters lives? Mm -hmm. The middle? Mm, not, not even Any that, of really. them? Yeah. The Atlanta? I don't, like, I just don't even... Yeah, I think people are steering clear of politics in general just because it's so polarizing right now. Agree, yeah. and, like, this is... We don't talk about politics except for the first episode back. It's yeah. about the circumstances. Right. And that's a thing to remind people that it's just the first episode that really tackles the Trump thing. Well, here's what I'll say. It's it's This is what I think, you know, we heard a lot, which is that the first episode is going to piss off liberals and the second eight are going to piss off conservatives. Mm -hmm. That's the irony is I actually think Trump voters are going to hate this show. Right. <laughs> it's the kid in a dress and the Muslim neighbor and that, you know, you know, Dan's best friend is black. And, you know, it's actually, you know, DJ married the black girl from the school play that he wouldn't kiss and they have a black daughter. I mean, actually, I think that conservatives might actually hate it, <laughs> which is the irony of all of this. Um, but if nothing else, it, it should be an interesting conversation piece. Thanks, Whitney. We'll see. Thank you.